Adela, Countess of Blois, daughter of William the Conqueror, received her husband's letter in early 1098. She was eager to know what had become of Stephen. After all, it was she who had driven him to participate in the grand pilgrimage to Jerusalem. No son-in-law of William the Conqueror could stand by idly during such a glorious undertaking. Busy as she was managing the County of Blois and maintaining her household in her husband's absence, she made the time to read it, methodically working her way through the Latin which she had been trained in as a child. In cold, cloudy northern France, her keen eyes inspected the words her husband had put to paper some months ago in faraway Anatolia. Count Stephen to Countess Adela. His sweetest friend, his wife, whatever his mind can imagine, better or more favorable. Be it known to your love that I made the blessed journey to Rome with all honor and physical health. I took pains to send you a relation of my life and pilgrimage by letter from Constantinople. But in case something unfortunate happened to the messenger, I am rewriting the letter to you. To the city of Constantinople, with great joy, by the grace of God, did I arrive. The emperor, most dignifiedly and honorably, like a son of his, most worthily received me and bestowed most ample and most precious gifts. And in the whole of God's army, there is no duke, no count, or any other important person whom he trusts or favors more than me. Truly, my beloved, his imperial dignity has very often advised me to commend one of our sons to him. In truth, I tell you, today there's no such a man living under the sky, for he enriches all our princes most generously, consoles the knights with gifts, and restores all the poor with feasts. In our time, it seems to us, there has not been a prince so illustrious by universal reputation for his customs. Your father, my beloved, bequeathed many and great things. But that was almost nothing compared to this. Writing these little things about him to you delighted me. That you might know something of who he is.
Hello and welcome to History of the Utremer, episode 2.18, Anthropu du Basileus, or in English, The Emperor's Men. So today, we're taking a very close look at one specific element of the interaction between the Crusaders and the Roman Emperor, Alexios Komnenos. The oaths of fealty they swore to him in 1097, and the homage they did him. All right, now, trigger warning. I do not use the English pronunciation homage, which is more common for this feudal act. I use the pronunciation traditionally associated with artistic homage, spelled with two M's. Why? Because both words come from French, and in French, it's homage. I get that the homage pronunciation reflects the loaning of this word from Old French into an earlier form of English, like marriage or percentage, but this is by no means a common word, and it looks French, so the French version dominates in my head. That's also why you'll hear me say uh, siege or even siege at times instead of siege. Y'all know what I mean. Personne ne va être confus. Now, last time I quoted Christopher Tierman in his book God's War as saying the negotiations between Alexios and the leaders of the expedition formed a pivot around which the nature and future perception of the campaign revolved. Well, to complete that passage, quote, the Westerners lacked unified leadership, a coherent political strategy, or an agreed military plan. They knew something of what problems to expect across the frontier with the Turks. They also had no clear view as to how to deal with them. Thus, Alexios was eager to assert demonstrable but indirect leadership over the expedition, while the Crusaders were equally keen to accept Byzantine assistance. What needed to be resolved were the terms of that control and the conditions of that assistance. The oath he wished them to swear to him was, according to Anna, a customary Latin oath. Whatever its details, the reactions of the leaders suggest that they recognized it. Once agreement and acquiescence had been obtained, Alexios lavished gifts on the Westerners, whom he now regarded as his servants. The only aspect of the Greek formula that failed, and did so disastrously, was the inability of most of the Westerners to become Byzantines. Although they could meet over mutual self-interest in the deals struck at Constantinople, there was a fundamental gulf, not so much of understanding, but of aspiration. Alexios saw his interests as eternal, the benefit of the empire. Anything else was peripheral or secondary, not least remote Jerusalem. He probably minimized the importance of the reciprocal nature of his agreement with the Crusaders, seeing them effectively as mercenaries. They regarded him as a lord with contractual obligations to preserve the interests of his vassals. When he was persuaded that the Crusaders were doomed at Antioch in June 1098, Alexios preserved his strategy by withdrawing his own army from danger. For the Crusaders, this withdrawal was inexplicable treachery from a lord whose help had been sworn. They, who had risked all so many times, failed to appreciate his caution. The shadow of Antioch fell deep over Greco-Latin relations in the 12th century, Nowhere more black than in the pages of the eyewitness chroniclers who felt and experienced the betrayal in which dim light they reevaluated all that had transpired between Alexios and the crusade leadership. It is small wonder that Anna Komnini was so frenetic in her attempts to exonerate Alexios from any suggestion of culpability over Antioch. 
for he had been caught out by that most politically damaging agent, events. If the Westerners had been annihilated at Antioch, as common sense dictated they should have been, Alexios would have been vindicated. Unfortunately, not only did they survive, they proceeded to win Jerusalem and returned to tell their tale. At the heart of the dispute lay the oaths sworn, which were solemn and serious. Despite the contrasting sensitivities locked into the descriptions of events at Constantinople, it appears that Alexios demanded and received from all the leaders except Raymond of Toulouse homage and fealty. They became the emperor's vassals, promising to restore to imperial rule all lands, towns, and castles they captured, which had formerly belonged to the empire. In return, Alexios promised help for the crusaders. The legal aspects of the agreements struck by Alexios and the Western leaders were less important than the political implications. Only by becoming Alexios' vassals could they extract necessary help. Initially, whatever the details, the treaties of Constantinople worked. Relations between Western leaders with the Greeks were good. Urban's plan seemed to be working. End quote. Both Alexis' needs and his plan were simple. He needed the Crusaders to not attack his empire, or in the case of men like Godfrey, to stop attacking his empire, and to make sure that whatever territory they conquered would be returned to him. His plan was to bring the Crusaders to his capital, keep them from meeting up with each other. Agbursum ishi krimpatul. And in the darkness, find them. However, working out exactly how this binding took place is a bit of a challenge. As Tierman points out, and as I have mentioned, once again, our sources are not to be trusted. They know how the story ends, and they are all writing for audiences in their present, with heavy doses of hindsight. Luckily for us, though, we do have a few documents that don't suffer from hindsight. And that brings us to our opening. Our opening today comes from one of my favorite crusader leaders, Stephen of Blois. Stephen is a, a funny character. We'll be coming back to him a few times. And he's a crucial source for the First Crusade because he never wrote a history. He wrote letters to his wife, Adela of Normandy. Adela was also quite the character. Her father, the one who Stephen mentions gave lovely gifts but not nearly as nice as the emperor's, was none other than William of Normandy the Bastard Conqueror. In case you are unaware, William was a fucking maniac, but you can't deny the guy's ambition and spirit. And that spirit was most definitely inherited by his youngest daughter, Adela. Adela was the only one of William's daughters to be born after his coronation as King of England, which did give a slight boost to her status. Western Europe didn't have porfirogenitoi, so to speak, but there was often prestige associated with being born to the reigning king, queen, emperor, or what have you. As is par for the course for medieval women, we don't have too much information about Adela. But what little we do have shows she was incredibly smart and as skilled a ruler as you could ask for. She was literate, slightly rare for the time for anyone, and pretty rare for a woman. And in this time, being a literate romance speaker meant being literate in Latin. Romance was still in its infancy as a literary genre. In fact, I was very happy to find a few articles by historian Kimberly A. Loprete focused on Adela, in which she specifies that Adela was indeed able to read and write Latin. 
When writing that opening scene, I was uncertain how exactly Stephen's letter, written by his chaplain, would have reached Adela. Likely, Stephen dictated his letter in Old French, or maybe Latin, to the chaplain, who translated it, if necessary, and wrote it down in Latin. Adela might have had the letter read aloud in Latin or translated on the fly to Old French, but given that she would have been able to read the original Latin herself, that's what I chose to portray in the opening. What really happened is anyone's guess. At 15, Adela was married off to Stephen Henry, heir to the county of Le Bois in France. The marriage was a political expedient, and Stephen was 18 years older than her. Still, the couple seems to have been able to make it work, and their marriage appears to have been a happy one, and successful by the standards of the day. They had at least six children. One of them, Stephen, named after his dad, would go on to be Duke of Normandy and King of England. He also married Godfrey of Bouillon's niece and became Count of Boulogne. Adela's astute personality occasionally shines through in the sources, and we have reason to believe that she was the one who encouraged, slash forced, her husband Stephen to take up the cross and travel to Jerusalem. Meanwhile, she stayed behind and managed all the affairs associated with running the county of Blois and raising her kids, which was a very important business indeed, and one she carried out exceptionally well, even if the sources only mention it in passing. As I mentioned, Stephen's decision to take up the cross was likely taken at the insistence of his wife, and so it's unsurprising that his contingent of the army was closely tied up with his wife's family. Stephen traveled with his brother-in-law, Robert, Duke of Normandy, Adela's brother, and William the Bastard's son. We talked about Robert a bit back in episode 2.15. For reasons that will become apparent in a moment, he's known as Robert Kurthose, from the old French phrase, courte hose, short stockings. Apparently a somewhat offensive nickname he'd received from his father, who didn't seem to like Kurt Hose at all. In fact, Kurt Hose had rebelled against his dad after William had refused to punish his other two sons for pouring a chamber pot on Kurt Hose's head. No, really. He had then gone on to stage a pretty ineffectual if annoying, rebellion against his daddy. So it's really not surprising that the sources indicate that when laying on his deathbed, William the Bastard expressed a desire to disinherit his eldest son. He was persuaded against taking this drastic action, but he did knock Kurt Hose down a peg. Instead of receiving the big fish, the Kingdom of England, Kurt Hose got the Duchy of Normandy, while his younger brother, William Rufus, got the Kingdom of England. Unsurprisingly, Kurt Hose was unhappy about this, and he'd eventually gained some supporters and attempted to rebel against his brother. Godfrey of Bouillon's brother, Eustace, Count of Boulogne, had gotten mixed up in this and lost his possessions in England as a result. The territories their dad had won back in 1066. As I've mentioned a few times, Eustace also crusaded. He likely traveled with Kurt Hose. Kurt Hose was pretty destitute at the time of the First Crusade, and so he was forced to mortgage the Duchy of Normandy to his little bro, William Rufus, for 10,000 marks, which he could use to prepare a decent army to embark on the Crusade, with Stephen of Blois, who was also quite rich, probably on the same order as Raymond of Toulouse. Add to this the fact that Kurt Hose seems to have been a somewhat talented military leader, and likable enough, 
This was likely what had persuaded men like Eustace to back him in his various rebellions. And so in 1096, combined with the wealth he and his brother-in-law could swing around, it also attracted a good amount of lords to their crusading army, bolstering their forces. Stephen and Robert Curthose had another leader with them, Stephen's cousin, another Robert, Robert of Flanders, who I'm just going to call Robert, because I can just call Robert Curthose, Curthose. Robert of Flanders had an interesting connection to Alexios Komnenos. Back in the 1080s, his father, also named Robert, had taken a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. On the way back, he had met up with Alexios Komnenos, and for a short time, he'd aided him in fighting Pechenegs in the Balkans. Afterwards, he'd even sent Alexios a contingent of 500 knights that Alexios had used against Turks in Anatolia. So for Robert Jr., he was really carrying on a family tradition here of helping out Alexios Komnenos. Stephen also had with him another important figure, Fulcher of Chartres. Fulcher would later write a history of the First Crusade, and well, this is where he got his first-hand info from. The combined armies of Stephen and the two Roberts traveled south through France, leaving in late September, early October. They met with Pope Urban personally in Lucca, Tuscany, before continuing on to Bari. They received a warm welcome there from Bowman's brother, Roger Borsa. Borsa was actually married to the Count of Flanders' sister, also named Adela. And, of course, as a Norman, he probably felt some kinship with the Duke of Normandy. By now, it was winter, and the seas were treacherous. Stephen and Curthose decided to wait for spring before attempting to cross the Adriatic. But Robert of Flanders was a bit more impatient and risked the journey anyway. Anna tells a cute little story about a naval skirmish here between some of Robert's ships and the son of the Byzantine admiral, who was a close friend of hers apparently. But it doesn't seem to have really been a huge deal, and Robert of Flanders arrived at Constantinople around the same time as Bowman. Back in Italy, though Stephen and Curthose had more than enough money and connections to fund their winter holiday, many of their followers didn't. And Fulcher of Chartres reports that many of the poorer knights ended up selling their weapons, taking up simple pilgrim staves, and going back home. Nevertheless, they still had a sizable force in April, when they attempted the crossing from Brindisi to Derechion. Unfortunately for them, despite waiting for better weather, they were plagued by shipwrecks and floods and their journey was slow. But they too arrived at Constantinople on May 14th, 1097. Raymond of Toulouse had arrived a few weeks earlier, and so with the arrival of Stephen and Curthose, the gang was complete. Now, as I mentioned, while on crusade, Stephen sent letters back to his wife in Blois, and these letters, as I said, are a crucial source. Why? Well, because they were written during the crusade. While the rest of our fancy histories are warped by later events, Stephen gives us an invaluable glimpse at the situation on the ground in the moment. And on the ground in the moment, Stephen shows us the affection many crusaders must have had for the Roman emperor, Alexios Komnenos. My favorite detail of the letter is the comparison Stephen draws between Alexios and his father-in-law, William the Conqueror. He says William's gifts were totally outshone by Alexios's grandeur. And the comparison to his wife's father 
is not coincidental. There was a distinctly paternal vibe to Alexis's dealing with the Crusaders, which stemmed from the Roman tradition of ritual adoption. Adoption was used both within the Byzantine court to build alliances and to tie foreign powers to the emperor. Before his coup in 1081, Alexis had actually been adopted by the former empress, Maria of Alania, in part because this relationship allowed him to see her in private so they could hatch all their schemes. Probably out of necessity, Alexios seems to have taken the use of adoption a step further and made it a core element of his foreign policy. As Jonathan Shepard puts it in Father or Scorpion, Style and Substance in Alexis's Diplomacy, quote, Adoption was used as a particularly solemn form of mutual guarantee between members of the ruling class. Alexios, once emperor, extended the practice to the adoption of foreign notables. End quote. Shepard goes on to point out that German chronicler Eckhard of Aura, who wrote a history of the First Crusade, said that adoption was Alexis's custom. He's not the only one, by the way. Albert of Aachen also reckons that adoption of foreign dignitaries was an imperial custom. This is not exactly inaccurate. Previous emperors had been very fond of presenting themselves as almighty fathers, particularly to the new Christian polities of Eastern Europe. Shepard goes on to say, quote, If Eckhard's statement were taken literally, it would suggest that Alexius was already adopting foreigners before his reception of the leaders of the First Crusade. It could be that prominent Turks or nomad chieftains were being dubbed Alexius's sons in the sense that they had been formally adopted by him. Presumably, Alexius saw this form of bonding as a mutual pledge between himself and the Latin leaders. It would have given them relatively easy access to Alexios and his palace rather as he had enjoyed access through adoption with Empress Maria, and it imposed upon Alexios, as their father, the duty to look after their welfare. At the same time, the Crusaders committed themselves as sons to a degree of deference towards Alexios, and were, at the very least, debarred from acts of violence towards their father. Adoption thus supplemented oaths as a means of forming ties with potentially troublesome individuals. Each rite was intended to institute norms of behavior directly between the emperor as a person and the oath-taker or the son. End quote. As Shepard mentions, Alexios was especially fond of referring to foreign allies, be they crusaders, Turks, or steppe nomads, as son. Very Nicki Minaj of him. All these bitches is my sons. And the similarities in how Alexis approached diplomacy with the Franks as to how he approached diplomacy with Turks and steppe nomads is a key point here. Back in season one, we had multiple examples of Byzantium hiring Frankish mercenaries. There were the Normans, Robert Giscar's older brothers, who had participated in the Romans' attempt to reconquer Sicily. And there were men like Hervé Francopoulos, Robert Carpin, and Roussel de Bayeul, those last three had had direct dealings with Alexios and his brother, Isakios. Not always positive dealings either. But the writings of various Byzantine sources, including Anakomnini, and in fact Alexios himself, show that in many ways the Romans viewed the Latins as very similar to the various steppe groups they had to deal with. The Pechenegs, the Cumans, and the Turkmen of Anatolia. They were all barbarians. And some Franks, at least, seem to have picked up on this perception. Eckhart of Aura, for example, wrote that Alexios, quote, 
causes the Franks to fight the Turks in the same way dog eats dog. <laughs> he wasn't far off from the truth either. Alexios had allowed Suleiman and his son Kilij Arslan to grow in power in Anatolia when he had been able to use their aid to install himself in Constantinople and fight off Robert Giscar. And now he was using the Crusaders to knock his erstwhile allies down a peg. One of those crusaders was, of course, Robert Giscard's own son, Bohemund. Now, Bohemund's negotiations with Alexios required some special attention. So before we talk about the oaths in general, let's focus in on his specifically. Because our old buddy Bohemund seems to have wanted something in return for swearing his oath. Anna gives us a vivid portrayal of the meeting between Bohemund and Alexios in the spring of 1097. As difficult as it is to trust Anna's characterizations at times, the portrait she paints of Bohemund is so lifelike and convincing that I have to admit, it's the image of him I carry in my head. Quote, Alexios talked at length with Bohemund, trying to discover the man's real feelings, and when he concluded that Bohemund would be prepared to take the oath of allegiance, he said to him, you are tired now from your journey. Go away and rest. Tomorrow, we can discuss matters of common interest. Bohemund went off to the Cosmodon, where an apartment had been made ready for him, and a rich table was laid, full of delicacies and food of all kinds. Later, the cooks brought in meat and flesh of animals and birds, uncooked. The food, as you see, has been prepared by us in our customary way, they said. But if that does not suit you, here is raw meat, which can be cooked in whatever way you like. In doing and saying this, they were carrying out the emperor's instructions. Alexios was a shrewd judge of a man's character, cleverly reading the innermost thoughts of his heart. And knowing the spiteful, malevolent nature of Bohemund, he had rightly guessed what would happen. It was so that Bohemund might have no suspicions that he had caused the uncooked meat to be set before him at the same time, and it was an excellent move. The cunning Frank not only refused to taste any of the food, he would not even touch it with his fingertips. He rejected it outright, but divided it up among the attendants, without a hint of his own secret misgivings. It looked as if he were doing them a favor, but that was mere pretense. In reality, if one considers the matter correctly, he was mixing them a cup of death. There was no attempt to hide his treachery, for it was his habit to treat servants with utter indifference. However, he told his own cooks to prepare the raw meat in the usual Frankish way. On the next day, he asked the attendants how they felt. Very well, they replied, and added that they had not suffered the slightest harm from it. At these words, he revealed his hidden fear. For my own part, he said, when I remembered the wars I have fought with him, not to mention the famous battle, I was afraid he might arrange to kill me by putting a dose of poison in the food. Such were the actions of Bohemund. I must say, I have never seen an evil man who in all his deeds and words did not depart far from the path of right. Whenever a man leaves the middle course, to whatever extreme he inclines, he takes his stand far from virtue. Bohemund was then summoned and required, like all the others, to take the customary Latin oath, 
knowing what his position was, namely, that he was not descended from illustrious ancestors, nor had he a great supply of money, and for this reason not even many troops, but only a very limited number of Frankish retainers. And being moreover by nature ready to swear falsely, Bowman yielded readily to the emperor's wish. Then the emperor selected a room in the palace and had the floor strewn with every kind of riches, clothes, gold and silver coins, and objects of lesser value filled the chamber so that one could not even walk because of their quantity. And he told the man who was to show Bowman these things to throw open the doors suddenly. Bowman was amazed at the sight and exclaimed, If all these treasures had been mine, I would have made myself master of many countries long ago. To which the attendant replied, The emperor makes you a present of all these riches today. Bohemon was overjoyed, and after giving thanks for the presents, he went away to rest in the house where he lodged. But when these treasures were brought to him, he who had admired them before had changed his mind, and said, Never did I imagine that the emperor would inflict such dishonor on me. Take them away and give them back to him who sent them. But the emperor, knowing the Latin's characteristic fickleness, quoted the popular proverb, let bad things return to their own master. When Bohemond heard of this and saw the porters carefully packing the presents up again, he changed his mind. He who a minute before was sending them away and was annoyed at them, now gave the porters pleasant looks, just like a sea polypus that changes its form in an instant. For by nature the man was a rogue, and ready for any eventualities. In roguery and courage, he was far superior to all the Latins who came through then as he was inferior to them in forces and money. But in spite of his surpassing all in excessive activity and mischief, still fickleness like some natural Latin appendage also followed him. So he who first rejected the presents afterwards accepted them with great pleasure. For he was bitter as he had left his country a landless man, ostensibly to worship the Holy Sepulchre but in reality with the intent of gaining a kingdom for himself, or rather, if it were possible, to follow his father's advice and seize the Roman Empire itself, as he was prepared to go to any length, but he required a great deal of money. The emperor, who understood his disagreeable and ill-natured disposition, did his best cleverly to remove anything that would assist him in his secret plans. Therefore, when Bohemon demanded the office of Great Domestic of the East, he did not grant this request, for he was trying to out-Cretan a Cretan, for the emperor feared that if he gained power, he would make the other counts his captives and bring them around afterwards to doing whatever he wished. Furthermore, he did not want Bohemon to have the slightest suspicion that his plans had been detected, so he flattered him with fine hopes by saying, the time for that is not yet ripe, but by your energy and reputation, and above all, by your fidelity, it will not be long before you have that honor. End quote. So Anna says Bohemond asked for the role of domestic of the East, while the jest of Francorum says he was promised a huge chunk of land around Antioch, as we heard in the appendix to episode 2.14. My question is, ¿por qué no los dos? Why not both? 
I might be missing someone, but as far as I can tell, the last two domestics in the East were also governors of Antioch. These were Isaacios Komnenos, the emperor's older brother, and Filaretos Parhamios, the Armenian warlord who had independently created a Byzantine successor state with the aid of Frankish mercenaries after the Battle of Manzikert in 1071, and then been brought back into the fold by Alexios. Filaretos was also a non-Roman. He was Armenian, and the core of his army were Frankish knights. So for Alexios to offer either role to another non-Roman with Frankish knights at his command seems perfectly plausible to me. And combining the two roles made sense, as Antioch was the key to successful military operations on the eastern frontier. Now, Anna says Alexios didn't commit to naming Bohemond domestic of the East, but the Gesta doesn't exactly dispute that. To quote Jonathan Shepard again, this time his article, When Greek Meets Greek, Alexios Komnenos and Bohemond in 1097-1098. It is worth noting that the Gesta does not unambiguously represent Alexios as swearing to grant lands beyond Antioch to Bohemond. He merely said, Dikshit, that if Bohemond would swear with free consent, he would give them, and he swore to observe his own oath so long as Bohemond kept that oath, i.e. the oath which he had earlier vainly sought from all the leaders, and which he now sought from Bohemond. The emperor's own oath is not defined, but it seems to refer forwards to his oath to all the crusaders, delineated three sentences later, to keep good faith, to accompany them with an army and a navy, to provision them, and to make good their losses. The Gesta's style is at once staccato and cumbersome, and it would be very hazardous to deduce much from its use of dixit, rather than a term specifically meaning swore. But the fact remains that the Gesta does not unambiguously state that a grant was formally conferred under oath on Bohemond. It could as well be taken to mean that Alexios made an undertaking, unsworn, to reward Bohemond with lands in return for his taking the oath an undertaking that he was morally, but not strictly speaking legally, bound to honor once Bohemond had sworn his oath, and presumably so long as he kept it. Interpreted thus, this passage of the Gesta conveys a scene not so discordant with that in the Alexiad, of the emperor dangling before Bohemond the prospect of lands, or a high command, respectively. End quote. Staccato and cumbersome. You know, I would have thought a modern historian would have been above such slandering of the anonymous author's Latin. How many times do I have to tell you to keep the anonymous author's unknown name out your fucking mouth? Hey, to anyone listening in 2030, does that reference still make sense? Or is it like referencing Tom Cruise jumping up and down on Oprah's couch in 2005? Do we even still have podcasts in 2030? Have I gotten to the end of the First Crusade yet, or am I still wasting time with tangents about sea snails and oldie Slavic naming conventions? What was I talking about? Ah, yeah. So, whatever the exact details of their arrangement, as events will come to show, there does seem to have been a special relationship forged between Bohemond and Alexios. Last time, we talked about all the shenanigans going on before Bohemond's arrival to Constantinople. And it's almost certain he was in contact with Alexios throughout. His behavior might simply have been part of negotiating the terms of this arrangement, whatever promises he actually got from Alexios. As for Alexios, winning over Bohemond was essential, really for two reasons. One, 
The guy was dangerous. He had contacts both among the various crusading armies swarming the empire and within the empire. And two, the guy was useful. He had contact both among the various crusading armies swarming the empire and within the empire. Anna accuses Bowman of trying and failing to out-cretin a cretin, basically trying to con a con artist. I guess Cretans were famous for being tricksy. I don't know. Sorry if that's offensive to 12th century Cretans tired of that stereotype. Where I'm from, we actually refer to scams as Chilean packages. So, there you go. Anyway, the argument has raged ever since as to who actually had the wool pulled over their eyes here. Alexios or Bohemond? And I think neither. I think they both knew what was what. They both knew the arrangement was good as long as it was good. I think Bowman had been convinced that his success was tied up in loyal service to Alexios, for now at least. And Alexios was aware that Bohemond would betray him if he ever got a better offer. Anna portrays him as a villain, but he was really a useful asset for Alexios. Bohemond could and would work as a very effective bridge between Alexios and the other Latins. He spoke Greek, and he understood Roman policy. After all, he'd grown up in former Byzantine lands in southern Italy. According to Anna, he was familiar enough with the Byzantines to, one, ask for a specific military title, and two, know that it was vacant at the time. The same could not be said for the other crusaders. In fact, it's been questioned whether or not Alexios and the crusaders were even operating on the same wavelength. In his 1984 article, The Oaths of the Leaders of the First Crusade, to Emperor Alexios I Komnenos, Fealty, Homage, Pistish, Dulia, Jonathan Pryor tackles the difficulty in working out the intended, true meanings of Latin phrases like fidelitas, something like fealty, and homo, man, or vassal, as well as their Greek, quote-unquote, equivalents, Pistish, fealty, roughly, and the terms dulia, which could either mean slave or someone bound to another, as well as anthropos, a man, a direct translation of the Latin word used to indicate a vassal, homo, or in French, homme. Not to mention words like Latin sacramentum and Greek orkion, both meaning oath, roughly speaking. Prior has the following to say. Quote, the method which the emperor used was to bind the leaders of the crusade to him by oaths. The precise nature of these oaths and of the juridical and political relationships established by them between Alexios, the empire, and the crusaders have formed the basis of an enormous scholarship. For the most part, however, that scholarship has been remarkably naive in its historical methodology and extremely uncritical of the sources used to elucidate the problems. At the present time, most historians of the Crusades seem to accept that the leaders performed homage to the emperor, becoming his vassals, and swore fealty to him according to the Latin Frankish feudal understandings of those terms. I wish to dispute that understanding and to suggest two things. Firstly, that what the Byzantines and the Crusaders understood by the oaths were two entirely different things. Secondly, that what the Crusaders understood their oaths to be was oaths of fealty alone, and that to them there was an enormous difference between the swearing of such oaths of fealty and the performance of vassal homage. End quote. 
But labels, man, as Bismarcky could tell you, we often avoid putting certain labels on things when it's convenient to us. In this case, our historians have reasons to distort events. Antioch, again, hangs over all of this. At that point, the crusading army will break away from any arrangement made with Alexios, citing his failure to support them as a betrayal of his side of the deal. So our Latin historians have every incentive to downplay the crusaders' subordination to Alexios and present the negotiations of 1097 as a bilateral treaty. Anna, on the other hand, has every reason to present the crusaders as something more like rebellious vassals. The arrangement in 1097 was that of a benevolent father and his children. She has no reason to entertain silly notions that Alexios was the one who'd made the deal null and void when he'd failed to support them at Antioch. As Pryor points out, it's also very possible that the Crusaders and the Byzantines had different notions in mind regarding these oaths. It's also worth pointing out that the 11th century was a transformative one in both the Latin West and the Roman East. All of the crises we discussed back in Season 1 had obviously changed the nature of Roman politics, and the expansive boom of the West that we talked about in the first episodes of the season, as well as specifically in Episode 2.11, well, all that had changed the nature of politics as well. Larger polities were being knitted together out of the fractured cellular lordships that were left in the wake of the Carolingian collapse. New vocabulary and practices related to political hierarchies were being developed. So both sides were primed to engage in a type of arrangement that maybe had no precedent, and as such was not entirely familiar to anyone. As Jonathan Shepard puts it in When Greek Meets Greek, quote, The gap between Anna's viewpoint and that of the Latin sources looks, at first sight, vast as well as befogged by our uncertainty as to what Anna may have meant by such terms as orkia pista. It must also be borne in mind that the concepts underlying the ritual of homage and fealty were not uniform, static, or very precisely formulated in Western Europe in the 11th century. And in any case, the unprecedented and extraordinary circumstances of the crusading leaders in 1097 could have caused them to put new glosses on the concepts and practices which they brought with them from their various homelands. Above all, even though the Byzantines may have been familiar with the outward forms of the ritual of homage and fealty, they may not have understood the resultant relationship in the same way as Westerners did. And total internal consistency in the Byzantines' attitude towards the relationship should not be presupposed. Thus, Anna Komnini treats the procedure imposed by Alexios on each crusading count as tantamount to an act of submission, committing each to obedience and active service. Yet on her own evidence in Book 10, more than a simple act of submission was involved. For the oath which Godfrey of Bouillon swore was to hand over whatever former Byzantine towns, territories, or fortresses he managed to capture to the emperor's representative. In other words, Godfrey was recognized as being in command of a military force capable of operating independently. Nonetheless, Anna harps on the servile status of Godfrey and the other commanders. Most probably she mirrors the outlook of her father in regarding as a customary oath of obedience what was in fact an unprecedented and essentially reciprocal agreement.
it was all the easier for the two parties to the agreement to interpret it in different ways, when ambiguity lingered in the West as to the significance of oaths of fealty, and above all, of homage, when rendered by one high-ranking potentate to another. End quote. So here's my take. Alexios definitely had tons of experience dealing with foreign mercenaries. He really seemed to prefer them, likely because as a usurper, his position within Roman circles was not at all that solid. Outsiders, especially those entering the folds from a place of weakness, like Turkish former slaves, such as his trusted general Tatikios, or defeated Pechenegs and Normans, would struggle to capitalize on that vulnerability. But the Crusaders in 1097 were not coming from a place of weakness. Many of them were lords with substantial power back home. Even though Anna says Bohemond was landless, this is clearly false. Bohemond definitely held lands in Italy. And all the crusade leaders could operate with a certain degree of independence. The same was just not true of previous Franks, like Roussel de Bayeux, who only came to prominence within the Byzantine military. They didn't have their own source of legitimacy. In terms of a diplomatic conundrum, these crusaders were much more like the Sultan of Rum, Suleiman ibn Kutlumush. If our understanding of the arrangement between Alexios and the Crusaders is vague, the arrangement between Alexios and Suleiman is a friggin' Rorschach test. You can see whatever you want to in that. But there was some arrangement, and my gut feeling is that Alexios approached the Crusaders in much the same way. Alexios knew where he was standing, he didn't have the leverage to force vassalage on men like Godfrey or even Hugh of Vermandois. Much has been made about the fact that Anna describes them as anthropu du vasileos, the emperor's men, equating that with the Western usage of Latin homo or French homme man to indicate a vassal. But Pryor argues that, quote, Anna uses anthropos, with a range of meanings, within a general and perfectly well-established concept of Byzantine political cosmology. When she uses it in any specific context, we may not assume that she is doing so to mean man or vassal in a Greek translation of the Latin homo or om, unless there's corroborating evidence. In the case of Hugh of Vermandois, there is no further corroborating evidence, either in the Latin sources or in the logic of the historical circumstances, to suggest that Anna is using anthropos as a translation of homo om in the feudal sense of vassal. In fact, she is using it in this case to imply relations of loyalty and faithfulness, of an imprecise type, derived from notions of service, dependency, retainership, and adherence which were as common in the non-feudal Byzantine world as they were in the feudal Latin West. Anna's use of anthropos was meant to provide a general framework of understanding for a Byzantine audience, rather than to reflect any specific feudal, juridical, or political relationship. End quote. There's another word that Anna uses to refer to men like Hugh of Vermandois, and that's dulos. The history of this word is complicated. In classical Attic Greek, it had meant a born slave. Over the centuries, it came to mean more like someone bound to another. And in the 13th and 14th centuries, the term would be used as an equivalent to Latin concepts of vassalage and feudal relationships, as the Byzantines developed their own version of that process. Pronia, or pronoia. 
imperial grants of lands and rights to taxation. But Anna was writing well before that term had entered common usage. What's more, the context here matters. According to her, at some point during Godfrey's attack on Constantinople, the one we talked about last time, the emperor sent Hugh of Amandrois out to Godfrey, hoping that Hugh would be able to convince Godfrey to put down his arms and swear an oath to the emperor. Remember that Godfrey's pillaging of Roman lands had started because Hugh was supposedly being held in chains. Now Hugh was trying to calm the situation. Godfrey wasn't having it though. Again, according to Anna, he criticized Hugh's behavior, particularly his subservience to the emperor. In Anna's text, he said, quote, You left your own country as a ruler. Anna's text uses the exact word vashilevs, the same word used to refer to the Roman emperor. And he continued, quote, Now from the heights, you've brought yourself down to the level of a dulos. In this context, it becomes clear that it's really unlikely Anna is speaking about a, at that time, obscure concept of vassalage. She's clearly putting into Godfrey's mouth a derisive comparison between the status of a ruler and that of a slave. He was not a literal vachilef emperor or king back in France. So there's no reason to think that her use of dulos was supposed to be a literal reference to vassalage. However, what Anna's really capturing here is the Frankish resistance to whatever it was Alexios wanted from them. It was clearly seen as a more extreme form of subjugation than a straightforward mercenary oath of fealty or whatever. The Latin sources are somewhat vitriolic about the decision to go forward with this arrangement. The Gesta Francorum says that it was maybe out of necessity, which is true, but his phrasing for what they did is... They humbled or humiliated themselves before the will of that most wretched emperor. The most anti-Byzantine source, Raymond of Aguilé, is even harsher in his treatment of these events. He recounts that while his lord, Raymond of Saint-Gy, was in Constantinople, many of Raymond's men started to ravage the land around Constantinople and were put to flight by imperial forces. You know, general crusader nonsense. However, he is pretty unequivocal in his attacks against the emperor, writing, quote, Although events have lightly accompanied the writer so far with happy and favorable steps, they now follow with so great a weight of bitterness and sorrow that it grieves me to have begun what I have vowed to finish. What indeed is the most important and first matter that I shall proceed to mention? The most false and detestable deceit of the emperor's admonition? Or the most base flight and unthinkable desperation of our army? Or shall I leave a monument of perpetual sorrow by enumerating the deaths of such great princes? Let anyone who desires to know this, however, seek it rather from others than from me. Accordingly, when the count had been received most honorably by the emperor and his princes, the emperor demanded of the count homage and the oath which the other princes had made to him. The count replied that he had not come here to make another his lord, or to fight for any other than the one for whom he had left his country and his possessions. 
Nevertheless, if the emperor would go to Jerusalem with the army, he would commit himself and his men and all his goods to him. But the emperor excused himself from the journey by saying that he greatly feared lest the Germans, Hungarians, Cumans, and other wild peoples devastate his empire if he made the journey with the pilgrims. Meanwhile, the count, upon hearing of the flight and death of his men, believed that he had been betrayed. And though certain of our princes, he vehemently charged the emperor with having committed treason. But Alexio said that he did not know that our men had devastated his kingdom, and that he and his men had suffered many injuries, and that there was nothing of which the count could complain, except that while the army of the count in its usual manner was devastating the villages and towns, it took to flight upon seeing the emperor's army. Nevertheless, he promised that he would give satisfaction to the count, and offered Bohemund as a hostage for the satisfaction. They went to trial. The count, according to law, was compelled to give up his hostage. Alexios asked for homage again and again, and promised that he would give much to the count, if he would do him the desired homage, as the other princes had done. The count, however, was constantly meditating how he might avenge the injury to his men, and drive away from himself and his followers the disgrace of such great infamy. But the Duke of Lorraine, the Count of Flanders, and the other princes deprecated such action, saying that it would be very foolish to fight with Christians when the Turks were threatening. Bohemond, indeed, promised that he would aid the emperor if the count made any attempt against the emperor, or if he excused himself from homage and oath. Thereupon the count took counsel with his men, and swore that neither in person nor through another would he sully the life or honor of Alexios. And when asked about homage, he replied that he would not do that even at the risk of his own head. And for this reason the emperor gave him few gifts. End quote. So Raymond of saint was really pissed about the emperor's treatment of his army. And the emperor said, hey, what are you going to do? Shit happens. But I guess if you're really angry, I'll give you a trial or whatever. Raymond of Aguilet is unclear as to the exact methods or results of this trial, but given that the count had to then return the hostage he'd been given as collateral, oddly enough Bohemond, we can assume that the trial found in the emperor's favor. Still, Raymond refused to do homage, and as a result, he got few gifts. You get nothing! You lose! Good day, sir! Alexios is basically a cross between Nicki Minaj and Willy Wonka. All three seem to appreciate purple as well. Anyway, Raymond did swear not to sully the life or honor of the emperor. In the Latin context, honor likely meant more like property, meaning the emperor's lands. This was likely a reference to the emperor's insistence that all his lands be returned to Roman officials. Unsurprisingly, Anna Comnini has a very different version of events. Remember that she calls Raymond of saint Isangelis. She says, quote, For one of them, Isangelis, Alexios had a deep affection for several reasons. The Count's superior intellect, his untarnished reputation, the purity of his life. He knew, moreover, how greatly Isangelis valued the truth, whatever the circumstances. He honored truth above all else. 
In fact, Isangelis outshone all Latins in every quality, as the sun is brighter than the stars. It was for this that Alexios detained him for some time. He sent for him on many occasions. He explained in more detail the adventures that the Latins must expect to meet with on their march. But he also laid bare his own suspicions of their plans. In the course of many conversations on this subject, he unreservedly opened the doors of his soul, as it were, to the Count. He warned him always to be on his guard against Bowman's perfidy, so that if attempts were made to break the treaty, he might frustrate them and in every way thwart Bowman's schemes. Isangelis pointed out that Bohemond inherited perjury and guile from his forebearers. It was a kind of ancestral heritage. It will be a miracle if he keeps his sworn word, he said. As far as I am concerned, however, I will always try, to the best of my ability, to observe your commands. End quote. So where Raymond of Aguilet has the Count of Toulouse entirely opposed to Alexios and, in fact, face the emperor in a trial to determine the emperor's culpability in attacks against his army, Anna has them becoming fast friends. I know that we started out as foe, but after that courageous act that you showed me against the one they called Bohemond, maybe someday we could become friends. Friends who ride majestic, translucent steeds, shooting flaming arrows across the bridge of Hemdale. I would follow you into the mists of Avalon, if that's what you mean. Do you want to see something super cool that only three people have ever seen in their lifetimes? Honestly, all that's missing is a scene of them building bunk beds together. Where Aguilé has Raymond refuse to perform homage, Anna says he swore to obey all of Alexis's commands though she stops short of explicitly describing their relationship as one of vassalage. Notably, their treatment of Bohemond in all this is completely different. Aguilés says Bohemond acted as a hostage from the emperor to Raymond. That implies a close relationship, that the emperor would have been, at the very least, inconvenienced by the loss of Bohemond. Once again, that special sort of bond seems to be popping up. Aguilé also says that Bohemond basically told Raymond he'd fuck him up if Raymond did anything to harm the Emperor. Anna says Raymond and the Emperor bonded over a mutual dislike of Bohemond, and we can really see her treatment of Raymond as the other side of the coin to her treatment of Bohemond. In the years to come, Raymond will indeed become a close ally of Alexis's, mostly due to his rivalry with the other future Uchmer rulers, Bohemond included. At this stage, though, I doubt Anna's account. I do have to mention that it is backed up by Albert of Aachen, of all people, who directly contradicts Raymond of Aguilé. He says, quote, Raymond, who became favored and esteemed by the emperor, stayed on for 15 days in Constantinople. He gained a very large quantity of rewards and gifts from the emperor and became his man on his honor and solemn oath, end quote. However, Raymond of Aguilé is backed up by the Gesta, whose account is maybe suspiciously almost identical. Anonymous says, quote, Now, the Count of Saint-Gilles was staying outside the city in the suburbs, and his men had remained behind. And the Emperor commanded the Count to come and do homage and swear loyalty to him, as the others had done. 
But as the emperor was sending this message, the count was planning on how he might get revenge from the imperial army. However, Duke Godfrey and Robert, Count of Flanders, and the other princes said to him that it was not right to fight against Christians. And then that wise man, Bohemund, said that if the count did the emperor any injustice or did not swear allegiance to him, he himself would take the part of the emperor. Thereupon the count, having taken counsel of his men, swore to respect the life and honor of Alexios, and would never consent to harm the emperor, either by his own deed or by the deed of one of his men. When he was called to swear allegiance, he responded that he would do nothing of the sort, even at the risk of his own head. End quote. Yeah, most of this is really similar to what Raymond of Aguilera says, and the phrasing of that last line is identical. Both Latin accounts have non che pro capitis periculo id facturum. We've talked about the weirdness going on with the Gesta Francorum before, so maybe this was just lifted directly from Raymond of Aguilera, or it was a very well-known direct quote. Still, I find Aguilera's account more in line with Raymond's behavior in history. Anna's version of events is just a little too neat and tidy. No idea why Albert of Aachen backs it up, though. That's weird. Isn't it fun to have all these contradicting and confusing sources? Still, we haven't answered our original question. What was it about this arrangement that seemed to piss the Crusaders off so much? It can't just have been an oath of fealty, a promise that they would return reconquered lands, because... One, that would have been a pretty easy thing to agree to. And two, because Raymond of Aguilera's account specifically separates that oath from the homage Alexios wanted from him. So what did this homage that apparently all the other leaders performed entail? Albert of Aachen explicitly calls it vassalage. Speaking about Duke Godfrey's first meeting with the emperor, he says, quote, the emperor, when he saw the duke, who was so honorable, and his followers in splendor and adorned with expensive clothing, lavishly fringed with both purple and gold, snow-white ermine, and gray and variegated martin fur, which the princes of Gaul use in particular, he wondered greatly at their beauty and ornament. And first he received the duke with a kiss. Then he was prompt to honor all the nobles and those the duke had brought with him with the same kiss of peace. However, the emperor was seated, as was his custom, looking powerful on the throne of his sovereignty, and he did not get up to offer kisses to the duke nor to anyone. But the duke bowed down with bended knee, and his men also bowed down to kiss the exceedingly glorious and powerful emperor. Then, when everyone had been kissed according to rank, he spoke to the duke in these words, I have heard about you, that you are a very powerful knight and prince in your land, and a very wise man and completely honest. Because of this, I am taking you as my adopted son, and I am putting everything I possess in your power, so that my empire and land can be freed and saved through you from the present and future multitudes." The duke was pleased and beguiled by the emperor's peaceful and affectionate words, and he not only gave himself to him as a son, as is the custom of that land, but even as a vassal with hands joined, along with all the nobles who were there then, and those who followed afterwards. And without any delay, priceless gifts were taken from the emperor's treasury, 
for the duke and all who had gathered there, as much in gold as in silver, and in purple of many kinds, in mules and horses, and everything which was valuable. Thus indeed the emperor and the duke were fastened together by an unbreakable chain of complete trust and friendship, and from the time of the Lord's nativity, when this peace came about, until a few days before Pentecost, every week four men were sent from the emperor's palace to the duke, laden with gold bezants, with ten measures of Tertertoron coinage, with which the duke's soldiers could be maintained. End quote. Now, Jonathan Pryor says that Albert must be mistaken, that this couldn't actually be vassalage. He says Albert's account, quote, reflects the vague and inaccurate understanding of ordinary crusaders in the camp, as reported orally, many years later, of the technical negotiations of their leaders, negotiations to which they were not party. Albert's affirmation that Godfrey performed vassal homage to Alexios is not supported by any of the four eyewitness Latin chronicles. His source is therefore unknown, and in that case was very probably an oral report given to him years after the event by an old crusader, rather than any now lost contemporary written record. End quote. We've talked about these issues with Albert's account before. Pryor in general feels that the crusaders did not perform homage and did not become the emperor's vassals. What they swore was a more general fealty. He says, quote, None of the genuine eyewitness sources mention fiefs, either in land or in money, being offered to the crusaders in return for their homage. Indeed, since Alexio specified that any ex-Byzantine territories recovered from the Turks were to be returned to direct Byzantine rule rather than held by the crusaders, the possibility of fiefs for the oath-swearing leaders was specifically denied. Acceptance of vassal homage by such lords without some sort of fief is unthinkable. The occasional gifts to them reported by both Anacomnini and the Latin sources, no matter how valuable they were, simply do not amount to the same thing. Nor do any sources mention annoyance or anger shown by any of the feudal lords of the Crusaders upon their return to the West after the Crusade. William II and Henry I of England, Philip I of France, and the Emperor Henry IV were not the type of men to allow their vassals to take other lords lightly. Yet, to the best of my knowledge, no displeasure was shown by them on the score of their oaths when Robert of Normandy, Robert of Flanders, Hugh of Vermandois, Stephen of Blois, and all the others returned home. Moreover, even though Godfrey of Bouillon did not return home, one might still have expected some expression of displeasure on the part of Henry IV, had Godfrey become the vassal of the Byzantine Emperor, because Henry had long been suspicious of the overmighty House of Lorraine, to which Godfrey belonged. End quote. However, in When Greek Meets Greek, Jonathan Shepard counters this a bit, saying, quote, It was indeed customary in the West for homage and an oath committing a man to positive, active service of his lord to be requited with a fief in the form of lands. However, this was not a hard and fast rule, even in Western Europe, and the position and predicament of the crusader leaders at Constantinople in spring 1097 was anything but customary. They regarded themselves as Knights of Christ, or armed pilgrims, performing a sacred mission to Jerusalem at the Pope's behest. And very few of them were to show themselves in any way interested in lands of Romania. 
to some extent the ample presence of money which Alexios proffered, in return for homage and an oath, could have been regarded as a money fief. Short of supplies and far from home, they had no alternative but to agree to do homage. Unpalatable as this undoubtedly was to proud high-ranking magnates such as Godfrey of Bouillon and his brother, Baldwin. There is no good reason to doubt that a ceremony signifying homage was performed by each of them, while their oaths of fealty were solemnly sworn over some of the holiest relics in Christendom, including the crown of thorns and the true cross. End quote. This lines up very well with what the anonymous author says. Tan fortes et tan duri milites, cur hoc fece erunt, such strong and such tough warriors. Why do this? Without a doubt, because they were driven by the direst need. There is a wrinkle in this idea, though. Vassalage did not normally require the other side to swear an oath as well, and the Latin sources are pretty clear in stating that that's what Alexios did. As Jonathan Shepard puts it in, again, When Greek Meets Greek, quote, At the same time, our Latin sources insist that sworn pledges were made by both parties, the emperor as well as the crusade leaders. The jester recounts the terms which Alexios swore to the crusaders, and earlier describes Godfrey as making a pactum with Alexios, while Fulcher of Chartres regards the leaders as having made a treaty, fodush. A similar term, Pax, is used in our earliest extant reference to Alexis's arrangement with the Crusaders. The unanimity of the Latin sources on this point imposes on us the conclusion that Alexios did in fact offer sworn terms to the Crusaders, individually or collectively, for all the silence of Anacomnini. Counter-oaths on the part of lords were not common, particularly when the man had committed himself to a form of military service, as Godfrey of Bouillon and his fellows clearly had. But the existence of counter-oaths would help to explain why so many of the leaders did comply with Alexis's requirements, for his counter-offer, made presumably at the time of their oath-taking, seemed to assure the crusaders of what they needed most, naval and military support, provisions, and secure lines of communication. These corresponded, in the circumstances, most clearly with the needs and aspirations of the majority of the Crusaders, far more so than any fiefs in the form of lands would have done. And the existence of counter-oaths would have made it easier for the Crusaders to regard their arrangement with Alexios as a bilateral treaty instituting military cooperation, even though they had done homage to him. Ambivalence and inconsistency of thinking concerning feudal relationships was not unknown in Western Europe. Medieval theory, it has been observed, did not draw a very clear line between the feudal contract and what we should call a treaty. In both cases, confirmation by means of a sworn oath played a key role. The underplaying of the element of service is most apparent where both parties to the contract stood, or had hitherto stood, at the head of political structures. The homage of the Duke of Normandy to the King of France in the 11th or early 12th century did not necessarily entail his tight subordination to, or service on behalf of, the king. 
While the Crusaders' indignation at the exaction of homage, and indeed their subsequent behavior, indicates that they took their homage seriously, the foresaid considerations compounded that strong sense of reciprocity, of a contract entailing mutual obligations. How far Alexios was, with his counter-oaths, consciously catering for the sensibilities of the high-ranking leaders of the crusade, is difficult to fathom. It may well be that, in practice, he made concessions to Western pride and customs, concessions whose full significance he was inclined to obfuscate or simply fail to comprehend. We do not know the exact form of the arbitration to which he submitted himself in response to Count Raymond's charge of treachery, but such acts as handing over a pledge to the plaintiff smack more of Western than of Byzantine imperial practices. Moreover, there is evidence to suggest that a decade afterwards, it was still recognized on the Byzantine side that the deals struck with the crusading leaders had been bilateral treaties and not unilateral acts of submission. End quote. As I pointed out earlier, Alexios knew where he was standing, and I think that the confusion here stems in part from the novelty of what happened in 1097. It was a form of homage, a bit more binding than oaths of fealty, perhaps not outright vassalage, which wouldn't have required oaths from Alexios, who was willing to take himself down a peg and offer more than a previous Roman emperor might have offered to the Rus or the Bulgars. Much as he had played fast and loose when making alliances with the Sultan of Rum, Alexios was doing the same once again, hoping his new dogs would take care of his old ones. That's my read on it, at least. It's maybe interesting that none of our sources mention any hesitation coming from Hugh of Vermandois, Stephen of Blois, or either of the two Roberts. They also don't seem to get any special deals or ask for specific Byzantine military titles. No, the only troublemakers seem to be our future Outremer rulers, Godfrey of Bouillon, Raymond of Saint-Gilles, and Bohemond of Tarento. And what about Bohemond? Well, if anyone became the emperor's vassal in 1097, I think it was him. As events will show, Bohemond was far more integrated into the imperial circle than any of the other crusaders, and at least in 1097, I personally feel he was trying to earn that title of domestic of the East. He also gained a measure of respect from his relationship with Alexios. Bohemond did not have a particularly large army, and there's reason to believe that what few forces he did have were already starting to think about striking out on their own. Close ties with Alexios ensured that he was in a position of power. And the way I see it, as early as 1097, this was already starting to generate friction between him and other crusade leaders, especially Raymond of Saint-Gilles, who had assumed his close ties to Pope Urban and the fact that the papal legate Ademar was in his contingent, would catapult him to the head of the crusading army as a whole. Just as last time, from Alexis's perspective, this was a win. Did he entirely trust Bohemond? No, of course not. But for now, the tricky Norman's best path towards advancement lined up with Alexis's aims. And whatever the specifics of their homage and oaths, the Crusaders had been neutered and brought into the fold. 
Stephen of Blois' letter, written shortly after the Siege of Nicaea, probably reflects the opinion of most of the crusading army in 1097. They viewed Alexios as a benevolent father, a great Christian leader, who had given them finer gifts than any they had seen in their life. Stephen of Blois probably did think of himself as the emperor's man, to some extent. Sure, there were some malcontents and rebels, we'll get to that soon enough. But from Alexis's perspective... I, I see this as an absolute win. Towards the end of his life, Alexios left his son basically a list of instructions and tips on how to be a good emperor. In it, he focuses on foreign threats, and his recommendations on what to do line up pretty nicely with his behavior in 1097. Give lots of gold and be friendly as fuck. Clearly, decades later, he still felt he'd handled the situation well. As I did last time, I'll finish with a quote from Anakomnini that I feel sums up just how far the emperor was willing to go to make a deal here. Previous emperors had ruled from on high and demanded total submission. Alexios just wasn't in that position, and he had to deal with things in a different way if he wanted to keep his empire together and keep himself on top. But he had his eyes on the prize. The Crusaders would take care of his Turkish problem, or die trying. Anna writes, quote, Thus they all assembled, Godfrey amongst them, and after the oath had been taken by all the counts, a certain venturesome noble sat down on the emperor's seat. The emperor put up with him and said not a word, knowing of old the Latin's haughty nature. But Count Baldwin stepped forward and taking him by the hand, raised him up, rebuked him severely and said, It was wrong of you to do such a thing here. And that too when you have promised fealty to the emperor for it is not customary for the Roman emperors to allow their subjects to sit beside them on the throne, and those who become his majesty's sworn bondmen must observe the customs of the country. He made no reply to Baldwin, but darted a fierce glance at the emperor and muttered some words to himself in his own language, saying, Gauche paysans, il tient son siege, mentres tont tel vaillant. The movement of the Latin's lips did not escape the emperor, who called one of the interpreters of the Latin tongue and asked the purport of his words. What a peasant! He keeps his seat with such brave captains around him. When the emperor heard what the remark was, he said nothing to the Latin for some time, but kept the saying in his heart. As they were all taking leave of the emperor, he called that haughty-minded, audacious Latin and inquired who he was and of what country and lineage. I am a Frank of the purest nobility, he replied. All that I know is that at the crossroads in the country where I come from, there stands an old sanctuary to which everyone who desires to fight in single combat goes ready to fight. There he prays to God for help, while he waits in expectation of the man who will dare to fight him. At those crossroads I too have often waited, longing for an antagonist, but never has one appeared who dared to fight me. In reply to this, the emperor said, If you did not find a fight when you sought for it then, 
Now the time has come which will give you your fill of fighting. But I strongly advise you not to place yourself in the rear nor in the front of your line, but to stand in the center of the emilojitai, the junior officers. For I have had a long experience of the Turkish method of fighting. It was not to this man only that he gave this advice, but to all the others he foretold the accidents likely to happen on their journey and counseled them never to pursue the barbarians very far when God granted them a victory over them, lest they be killed falling into ambushes. Alexis's advice was not given entirely out of the goodness of his heart. He wanted to make sure his new dogs didn't get torn to shreds all at once. He soon had them ferried over to Anatolia, where they would put their mettle to the test against the might of the Sultan of Rune. For Alexios, it was time to see if his plan would work after all. And for the Crusaders, it was time to see if God found them worthier than the members of the Peasants' Crusade, or if their bones would become more pebbles to fill the cracks in the walls of Nicaea. They made me say tartartaron, tartartaron, tartar again. I, I can't say this word. Tartartaron. <laughs>